Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our master series, we are doing our fourth Preston Sturgis movie, and we is the lovely Zina Hitz, the very successful, wonderful author of Lost in Thought, and myself, who run the foundation. And we share a love of old Hollywood, of Frank Capra, as you would know from our previous conversation, and of course also of Preston Sturges, to whom we have dedicated an entire series. We turn to Hail the Conquering Hero, named for the Handel song from Judas Maccabeus, and the problem of war, and small town politics, and the dreams and ambitions of a young man played by the wonderful comic actor Eddie Bracken, who's living in the shadow of World War One and the honor of his father and who wants to be a patriotic American but is crippled by a chronic disease, chronic hay fever, something contemptible. You can only laugh at this guy but on the other hand he's blameless, he never did anything wrong and so how can this soft guy be turned into a conquering hero? That's the problem Preston Sturgis decided to take on because if he can't solve it no one can. Even taking this poor schlub and making him great he can do it. So let's see how he pulls that off. But of course, first of all, Zina, thanks a lot for joining me again. It's wonderful. Month after month, we do more Preston Sturges and I watch these movies and talk about them and generally feel better about myself because I bask in the reflected glow of the wit of Preston Sturges. And as I've had cause to say, it's just a joy to make you laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's very nice. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, too, have gotten a lot of consolation from these films, which are, after all, filmed in tough times and are meant to be in some way distracting entertainments and in other ways to give us something to reflect about, some way of coping with our circumstances. Yes, that's very well put, Zina. The movie came out in the autumn of 44. It was made the previous year. This is America at War. And America needed comedy. Indeed, some of the great comedies of America were made during the war years and delighted the nation. And of course, America is in other kinds of crises nowadays, but people might find again that they need some comedy. So Hail the Conquering Hero is the story of a loser. And in that way, it was like Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which we may also end up talking about. Eddie Bracken there also plays a loser, I'm putting in scare quotes. These are men who have not been able to enlist in the army because of some minor disability or defect. In both cases, played by Eddie Bracken, and in both cases, a humiliatingly slight disability. So in the case of Hail the Conquering Hero, it's the severe hay fever, which of course gives Preston Sturges a chance to put in some slapstick sneezes at various points. And in Miracle of Morgan's Creek, it's neurotic anxiety. Eddie Bracken's character gets anxiety attacks every time he tries to enlist, and so he can't go to war. So these men feel themselves to be failures. In Hail the Conquering Hero, we begin in a bar. We have Eddie Bracken's character, Woodrow, at the bar, slouched, looking off into the distance, face downturned. There's music playing. The bar is playing uh, sentimental favorites. These songs recur throughout the film, and you see the tears in the eyes of the soldiers gathered in the bar. So Eddie Bracken's there, and then in come the main plot machinery, namely these six Marines who are on leave, and they're down to 15 cents. They've gambled away all their money, so they order one beer for their table, squabbling among one another, and we have this wonderful William Demarest who always lights up the screen in every Preston Sturges film. Uh, You always love to see his face. And I think this is one of his best roles, most hilarious and most charming. So Eddie Bracken Woodrow at the bar up in San Francisco, some hours away from Oak Grove, California, where he's from. 
hears from the bartender that these men have only the money for one beer and six straws. So he buys them a round of beers. They come over to talk to him. And it turns out that he has left the Marines after a year on medical leave from severe hay fever. He's haunted by his failure because his father was a Marine who died on the day he was born. So he has this war hero father in the background. He has not told anyone. He hasn't called his mother. He hasn't written to his girl. He's just moping and thinking about the possibilities that might have been. The Marines, of course, have been in Guadalcanal fighting in the Pacific. They find out what his situation is. They're angry. They're upset. And they devise a plot to get Woodrow to return to his hometown by inventing a military career for him in the Marines. So they loan him a uniform. He's very, un- Woodrow's very unwilling. They all stick him on a train in a crowd. They go down to Oak Grove and they get a hero's welcome because they believe he's come back from Guadalcanal, a war hero, and he's been discharged. So there's a hilarious long scene at the train station with multiple marching bands, multiple parades, a speech by the mayor, keys to the city, all of which makes Woodrow absolutely miserable. That is, his whole thing is based on a lie. He knows the lie will come down eventually. And so the rest of the film is an attempt to undo this tension between this lie that his Marine friends have generated about his military history and the hiding of his military discharge and the truth, which Woodrow in a way wants to come out in a way can't bear the prospect of being exposed as a failure, a weakling as he feels that he is. So we have the romance with his girl, his relationship with his mother. We have his relationship with the town. They're so overwhelmed, it turns out, by this war hero's return that they nominate him for mayor. There's a mayor's election. So that also creates multiple intrigues. Anyway, it's just a fabulous film with music, speeches, hilarious characters appearing from the side. The band director in town is one of the good ones, constantly miserable because nothing's ever going quite his way. The sleazy mayor, who's obviously slick, corrupt, owns half the town. His son, who turns out to have gotten engaged to Woodrow's girl. So we have a little bit of how are we going to get Woodrow's girl away from the mayor's son, who clearly might grow up to be the mayor, which would not be the right choice. So anyway, it's all of this that feeds into this film. And it's very delightful and very humane. It's Sturges, as in Morgan's Creek, dealing with tremendous subtlety and wit and delicacy with a real human failure. That is the plight of these men for whom manliness, their sexual prowess, their success in life, everything hangs on their being in the war. And yet for some minor obstacle, they can't do that. What happens to them and what do they do and what meaning does their life have in the context of this terrible war? Yes, comedy is supposed to make people laugh, and we know from Aristotle that the laughable is primarily understood by us as the contemptible, which is not danger. There are contemptible things that could lead to bad stuff. You know, a coward could do very dangerous things. A soft man could become very cruel. But if it is contemptible and not dangerous, that's what we find laughable primarily. It speaks somehow to the fact that we are not free from cruelty as human beings. And so we have to deal somehow with that. Now, a comic poet is not a warrior. And that's partly why Preston Sturgis picks a 4F guy. And indeed, such a silly one at that. A young man who loves honor with fanaticism that was built into him from the day he was born. And yet can't do anything about it. And indeed has to learn to lament everything about the rewards of heroism. That is a wonderfully comic attitude. Comedy is not like the rest of drama in the sense that the plot has to be very, very tight. You gotta really know how you get from here to there and there and there, since everything is so laughable. And on the other hand, because there are so many impossibilities piled on top of each other, you really have to sell the audience on what you're doing, because if they stop believing in it, they stop laughing. 
So if you start with beginning and end, it's very revealing. And in the beginning, this young man hates himself because he's not a warrior. And at the end, he learns to accept being the mayor of a small town somewhere in California. That is the point. He has to be educated to put his love of the noble or beautiful away from war, which is after all a lot of killing, and into politics, which is after all serving the good of your fellow citizens. That's why he has to be kind of a soft guy. He's a boy who loves his mom. He's a boy who loves this beautiful young woman. He's not a tough guy. Not like these six marines who run through America with the same shocking efficiency as they did through the islands of the South Pacific. Indeed, they are heroes of Guadalcanal. He's not a man of war, he's a man of peace, but he doesn't understand it because he was born to this trouble. He's named Woodrow Lafayette Pershing Truesmith. <laughs> Woodrow, of That's course, great. for Woodrow Wilson because he was president in World War I. Pershing because he was the general who led the American troops in Europe in World War I. And Lafayette, you know, for the good old days when the French helped America <laughs> in the Revolutionary War. What is more patriotic than that? And you see his mother has a shrine to his father, a sergeant, in the old army of the Great War. The father died at Bellow Wood, the biggest marine battle of World War I, so far as America is concerned, in 1918. His father died there, and the same day the young man was born. So there's a change of generations, but will there be a change of destiny? The father received posthumously the Medal of Honor, the highest decoration America can bestow on the military, and it was pinned on the young boy, you're told. So the mother must have named the boy. Without realizing it, she set him on this path to worship his father, to worship the Marine Corps, and to therefore wish for patriotism, which turns out in a certain way to be wishing for death, the fate of his father. But since patriotism is a good thing and he was a noble man, nobody quite thinks through the consequences here. It is only the soldiers who talk about the dangers of war, the nightmares it gives them, the misery of what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, unlike people who psychologize today, these are still warriors and men, and they're proud of themselves and have a kind of American go-get-em attitude, but they also know the dark side. They are not simply like today, people insisting on victimhood, but they are not simply like the patriotic songs insisting on heroism either. William Demarest, who plays the great marine hero in this movie, also plays a marine hero of the Great War in Miracle of Morgan Creek, where he's told at the beginning, no, 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 the army has changed, we do it the nice way now. America has changed. The army has democratized. The army of the Great War was professional, small, and it had very harsh virtues. The army of World War II was national. This is why World War II is such a big deal. Even in the little town we see here in California, in Hell the Conquering Hero, it was 12 million people serving. Everybody knew somebody if they didn't have somebody in their family who served. It was such a big deal. And of course, far longer and more destructive of war than the Great War had been. It was very unifying, very patriotic, full of the passions you see unleashed in this story. So in a sense, our protagonist is an image of America. You see the whole town bursting with the passions that we see him suffering from in the opening scene. They too have all these patriotic longings. They too feel that maybe they're not doing enough or that they have to affirm their morality through all sorts of grand gestures. Everybody wants to be more American, more public spirit, and they don't know quite how to do it. And so it's not an accident that the protagonist and the town have to be matched in some way. But then the problem is that he has to be chastised for his love of heroism in such a way that he's still a patriot, but he's not self-destructive anymore. He has hated himself for, it must be a year or more now, 
he's doing his patriotic duty. He was discharged from the Marines, but he went and worked in the shipyards in California. Industries coming to California, building for the war efforts. And he's serving in this ignominious, anonymous way. He loathes himself, but he still does his duty. So, you see, he really believes in duty. It's not, I'll serve as a hero like my father or nothing. He will serve as anything. And so he is fit for politics. So I think that that's a beautiful way of putting the tension of the film. There's small town life with its petty intrigues, its politics, its families. And then there's the world of war, which in the film we see mostly, although not entirely, through the realm of certain kind of fantasy. The legend of the dead father who dies honorably at the field of victory, which came at great cost. And you have the wonderful, one of, I think, the most poignant scenes in the film is when the Marines are each going out in front of the crowd, which is nominated Woodrow for mayor, and telling stories about Woodrow in war in Guadalcanal. And their stock stories, you know, they're just produced one after another. It's like, so then he went down into the flood and he grabbed 50 Japanese. And, blah, 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 blah. and you know, I was there, I was pinned down, no one could help me, but there was Woodrow. And they know how to tell these stories. They know how to play this game. But you also know in this moment, because of the comedy and because of the meaning of what's going on, that this is all made up. This is not what it was like. It's pure fantasy. No one is a hero in the sense that's being described. And you learn that in this very brilliant Preston Surges way because of the exaggeration of the opposite. That and little subtle things like William Demarest is the most prominent Marine. But the other is the one who grew up in a home who doesn't have parents and who is furious at Woodrow for what he's doing to his mother. So the tension between the two of them is very interesting. And it's him, the motherless Marine, who is waiting outside his room while he's trying to sleep. And it turns out, you know, Woodrow's having nightmares because of the tension of his situation. He's come home in the cloud of lies and he has to try to find a way out of it. But the Marine can't sleep because if he goes to sleep, he'll see terrible things, which he experienced in Guadalcanal. So you get this quite subtle sense, but real, that war is horrible, it's unclear, it's messy, it's disturbing. Why is this young man so angry at Woodrow for neglecting his mother? Because he's had to face death for years without having a family at home, which seems to be about the worst prospect that these young men can imagine. So the thought that Woodrow is somehow neglecting his mother, you know, a mother that he has, a mother who loves him, and neglecting a girl is horrifying to this because they've looked death in the eye and they've seen terrible things. So somehow in the fusion of these two tensions, the war is fantasy world and the quotidian, boring, small town life, you get this beautiful image of Woodrow being re-welcomed by his town. In the last plot twist, Woodrow decides to come clean. He makes a speech to the whole town about what he's done and how he's lied and how it's not true and how he was discharged a year ago. And he just loved the town so much he couldn't bear to let them down. That speech is, of course, so eloquent and so beautiful that they want him to be mayor anyway. He wins this girl back anyway. So he gets all of the honors of the returning soldier just for being a good guy guy. True-hearted, honest, loving, dutiful, all the things that you've seen throughout the film, in fact, are underneath the surface. He really is this man of ordinary, small-town political virtue, honesty, courage, etc. But somehow, because he hasn't fit into this fantasy warrior model, he and the town, I think, neither has judged him correctly. So you have this moment of clarity, which is woven by friendly Marines, 
They want to recover their image of small town life and of family life, which has been keeping them, sustaining them while they're away. And Woodrow has to make peace with the fact that he has not been on the fields of Guadalcanal and that, in fact, the small town life is somehow really where it's at. It's what really matters for all of its faults. So it's lovely that way, both to see the tension and to see how funny it is. It's very touching, as usual with Preston Surges. It's totally fantastic. We have no reason to think that someone who is really in Woodrow's situation would meet this kind of smashing success. You would expect in real life some actual disappointments, maybe being rejected by the fiancé for the wealthier, more successful man, maybe being belittled or mocked by his townspeople for not having been quite what his father would have wanted him to be. But that's not what we get. We get somehow the dream, the reconciliation of all the tensions. And all with this hilarious musical background and marching bands and campaign songs. So it's, yeah, very delightful that way. While I think really touching on the fundamentals of what Americans are struggling with at this time, the threat of death, the threat of loss of loved ones, terrible violence, and, you know, not knowing how to bring back these people who have been, after all, fighting and living in a very, very different way, polar opposite of small town life. Yeah, I think you're right. There is quite a lot of implausibility piled up. And as you suggested, in fact, there's one plot that's driven by three successive plots created by three different creatures. First of all, the Marine with the nightmares who comes from an orphanage is the one who calls Woodrow's mother in the middle of the night and tells her he'll be there. He's an honorable guy. He's a hero. He will come home. You know, he's a young man who should be fighting for game, glory, recklessness, whatever. But in fact, he's pining for the home he never had. And as you said, he's appalled at the fact that Woodrow, who had this all, would give it away out of pride. He's the most troubled guy in the movie and the most violent. But you see also the softness that makes him hurt. As you said, he can barely get to sleep nights. Unless he's exhausted, he'll have nightmares. There's a terrible price to pay for war because Americans are not a race of warriors. This is a national army. Everybody who was called up had to go fight. And then, of course, many, many volunteered out of patriotism. But these are not men prepared for war. They don't know what the hell they're going to run into. And the war is pretty surprising itself. It's a new kind of war and new enemies. So he paid the price. And he would like there to be some success to America, even if it's not for him. You see how attached he becomes to Woodrow's mother, who becomes a sort of mother to him. But he wants at least Woodrow to do right by his mother, because the thought of a mother alone is killing him, because he is a son alone. This mismatch is what gets to him, and you see something of the essential character of male protection. This nobility makes the young Marine not want a mother for himself or to take Woodrow's mother. He wants Woodrow to go back to his mother. If somebody else gets this happiness, it's good enough to go on with the world and to justify the price paid in the war. And that's how things start. But of course, as noble as it is, it's just not clever. And so in the second plot, in the second act, once we're in town, we get to William Demarest, who has figured it all out, who is the clever fighting marine, a career soldier who's put in his 25 years, who has never risen above sergeant, but who has the craftiness of the sergeant. Indeed, all armies depend on sergeants. Those are the small kings that soldiers can obey and also love and know that they're living or dying together. It's not like a general or a president somewhere safe in Washington. So this sergeant figures out that he's going to conquer the town. <laughs> and uh, then in the third act, as you said, finally Woodrow comes up with his own plot. 
which shows his cowardly intelligence. He gets himself called away back to the Marine Corps, back to the military for more service, breaking his mother's heart again. That's frustrated and he's forced to come clean. So there is this shift like in a relay race from the Marine to the Sergeant to the failed Marine. And this great sergeant, played by William DeMorest, is an almost mythical figure. He drinks, he eats, he always tells a good story, he can persuade everybody of everything. At the end, it's him who gives one final speech and brings the whole town behind him like an army to elect Woodrow, while the marines are terrified of a lynch mob. So they're trying to defend the young man against the onslaught of the city. Because when passion runs high, you don't know if these people are happy or mad. And so this is a creature of myth, and it turns out that he was trained by Woodrow's father. He is like Woodrow's father. He is a father to Woodrow, but is also a father that Woodrow has to go away from because he's simply too dangerous. You cannot conquer small towns in California the way you might conquer islands in the Pacific. That man is just too dangerous for America. Happily, natural pleasures of the table. These guys love their flapjack. They love uh, a good night of drinking. That takes the restlessness out of them. That calms them down. Right. This is the only time Preston Sturgis wanted to give a testimony to the U.S. military. And he does it in a purely comical way. But it's a true testimony to the virtues of American armies. The peculiarities of the Marines, you know, the need to improvise, very American virtues, they're fully on display, but in a comical representation, which is quite wonderful. And these kinds of people are in some sense necessary, that is to say mobilization is necessary, getting people to care is necessary, managing to get across to the great American democracy and the small democracy of the small town. It's important because otherwise they might, as you say, end up in the hands of this small grubby SOB who's got the biggest business in town and therefore that's why he runs it. And as his nemesis, Woodrow, eventually wins, we surmise from that that Woodrow runs on the Democrat Party ticket. He's also compared to William Jennings Bryan in the Cross of Gold speech, so that's another hint. Whereas the rich businessmen are, of course, the Republicans, the oligarchy of the time, so to speak. That's why they're the bad guys. They have to be defeated by appealing to popular passion, by an everyman, that people will love enough to bother. Or else, I mean, how are you going to get politics going? That is a very American problem that Preston Sturgis was well aware of. We saw this in 2016 when President Trump had three or four generals in his cabinet. Or in the 90s when Republicans were thinking of running Colin Powell against the very shameless but very popular Bill Clinton. Or, of course, when Eisenhower ran America with acclamation. But this was much more so at the origins of America. It's not just that George Washington was America's general. He was there crossing the Delaware. He was there at Valley Forge. He saved America. He made America. But Americans didn't know much about politics, except that the president is the most important thing. And so they went for the obvious idea. Get yourself a war hero of the founder's generation, only James Monroe, who, of course, was with Washington crossing the Delaware, fighting at Trenton and at Valley Forge, was a war hero. But then, as soon as you run out of founders, uh, Americans decided first to go with a founder's kid, with John Quincy Adams, and then get a war hero, because in case of doubt, you get a war hero. And so, old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, was made president. And then another one of these generals that, you know, not a very impressive man, died early in office, Harrison, in 1840. He was a general. Then Polk was a reputed young hickory, Napoleon of the stump. Right. And indeed, he did the Mexico War. And after that, they elected uh, General Zachary Taylor as well. Right. This was the American idea. And of course, after the Civil War, after the greatness of Lincoln, you know, 
America went with Grant because he was a conquering general. Right. What do you do? You don't if you don't know much about politics, if you do not have that is to say an established politics that everybody knows about politics because you're told from young these are the political class. You're gonna have to find impressive men to lead the nation somewhere, and the military is the most obvious thing because it's the only one where you can really believe it's not mercenary. It's not like businessmen who are in it for themselves. So I see what you're saying. And of course, it's true that it is something that haunts American politics, the role of the military and the charisma of the military and the romance of the military and the sense that somehow the military knows how to get things done, that they can bring this drama and this heroism and this courage to conquer forces which are actually perhaps more difficult to conquer, the forces of corruption, narrowness, selfishness, lack of imagination, etc. In a way, you could see that part of what's going on in the way that you're thinking is how will soldiers solve this difficulty that the mayor is a corrupt, vain businessman? What does a soldier do in those circumstances? Well, it's funny because you mentioned the danger of the soldiers and, of course, their violent lifestyle being put into this small town. But I think it's interesting that the film does not really express that. So you would expect the classic Western for sure. You know, there's always a man who can't quite be in the town because he's too violent, right? Like John Wayne and Liberty Valance or Shane or these characters that are somehow the violence bearers cannot be properly integrated into the local community. And that's one of the great sources of reflection for American film, the role of violence in American communities. But you don't really get that because the Marines here are primarily storytellers. They're not applying violence. They're using their authority as Marines in order to reconcile a man with his mother and a man with his girlfriend. So it's in that way, very charming. I don't know. They are, as you say, the plot drivers. They're the sources of imagination. They know how to set up the fake phone calls and to switch the uniforms and tell the stories. We'll somehow make this whole thing work. And they're there to the end. So after Woodrow confesses to the town, William Demarest, the sergeant, gets up and says, I'll tell you I've been on the field and I've never seen courage like that. Like Woodrow is expressed by getting up in front of you and telling you the truth. And then he leads the people to renominate him for mayor. It's very unsoldierly practice, unless you think that part of the purpose of these, I don't know. Now I find myself with a question. I don't know quite how to think of soldiers as storytellers, as family reuniters. It sounds to me more like a poetic activity than a military activity. And I don't know how to think about that. Yeah, it's a very astute remark. They determine the whole situation here and change the future of this little town for the better. Now, violence is more important than you let on, but Preston Sturgis is with you. It's a comic. You can't let on that violence matters that much. There is a threat of violence at the end, and there's actually a fight when the Marines beat the daylights out of one of their own. Right. That's important. He betrayed them in a you know, somewhat insignificant matter, but it mattered at the time. And it's military-on-military military violence, so it's okay. They are not a danger to the civilian population, it would seem. <laughs> But there is another part of the art of war, which is what this is all about, deception. These people are not just storytellers, but very practiced in deceptions. They lie continuously. Indeed, when Woodrow appeals to the better angels of their natures by buying them a beer, they were busy lying to a bartender who had heard it all before. And he says, here's other soldiers who lied to me about the flag of Japan and the seat of Rommel's pants. 
or you know something from Hitler's uniform right. but that one I'm skeptical about he says <laughs> so they also lie all the time and they also do all these other deceptive things which is the danger with war what if you're teaching people things that once they get back home would not be practicable anymore the necessary dark arts of politics which are very obvious in war or espionage but not obvious everywhere else so there is that aspect to them without which the story simply couldn't happen because Woodrow is a good guy but he has no idea how to return home and the city you know these are well-intentioned people but have no idea how they should organize for political purposes indeed the candidate of democracy in the town himself says that i have everything but popularity a man who loves the people and has no idea how to talk to the people that is the funny thing about america these people can solve it they have impudence they have shameless deception but they're doing it for a good purpose and they got to go the story happens in 3 days one evening they meet in a bar the next morning they arrive in town and the morning after that they have a big hubbub in the third act and they're out of town by the afternoon because they cannot live there any more than shame could live there any more than gringo in stagecoach or whatever right and also i mean look at them they are magnificent in their way they should be putting <laughs> these virtues to use in some sense and you know with the spectacle of them seeing at least a comic equivalent of war a comic equivalent of conquest and success is necessary for our young uh, mr trusmith to realize that he should get out of the war business or that he was never fit for it in the first place he has a humility that is simply intolerable in war in in war you have to think of yourself as better than your enemy and destroy them he wouldn't harm anybody is what's wrong with woodrow but in peace and in a way in small town politics that's what's right with him but getting it across requires arts that the comic poet understands just like the man of war understands and that's one of the most interesting things about this movie usually preston sturges doesn't identify with a manly man right. he identifies with sexy women for example in the palm beach story right. and to some extent in sullivan's travels and the lady eve yeah of course that's his tendency the poet in a sense is like a woman he's soft he can charm he can deceive but he can't force people here however he can identify with a manly man but only as you say as a storyteller and that works in politics in politics speeches go a long way Well I suppose I have two thoughts. One is since you comment on the magnificence of the marines, the sort of physical, you know, they're all handsome and huge and in uniform and part of the brilliance of Eddie Bracken as with many actors, it's just his appearance. You know, he's got a weak chin and he's pale and his hair is kind of thin and he has just this comic weakness in his face and in his voice, kind of a high-pitched voice and the hay fever. So he's in that sense sort of very lovable anti-hero right it's easy to believe he's not a soldier unlike his rival his girlfriend's new fiance who's big and tall and well cut and handsome and also has severe allergies he's in some way a more dishonest character i think we're meant to think he's trying to get all the goods of everything he's going to be powerful at home without ever having to sacrifice himself whereas woodrow has this intense desire to be something different than what he really is so on the one hand i want to say that on the other i want to get back to this storytelling thing because i admit that part of my thinking about this is we just read war and peace with my seniors at st john's this is the teaching i'm doing and one of the great themes of war and peace in its war sections is is how utterly chaotic the field of battle is no one understands what's going on no one knows where anyone else is there's rumors flying everywhere there's not uh, who won the battle is extremely unclear 
the conclusive story about who wins and who loses is determined in a certain way by, first of all, sort of animal spirits of crowds. That is, there's a sense that we're winning and we've got to keep fighting or, oh, no, we're losing. And so people start to fall back. So there's a morale question. And on the other hand, the stories that are told. So that deception, which is a strong word, storytelling is maybe a bit more neutral. It can involve deception, but it can also be just a way of making sense of something that about which there was nothing to say. There were a bunch of people in a field killing each other. Lots of people died. Who won? That's not always obvious from within the world of War and Peace, or I think probably in the South Pacific. You have to tell a story about who won with confidence. And you have to persuade your own people and the enemy that you are winning and they are not. That's a dark art. That's not just a matter of being a brilliant strategist or having great technology or so on. It's something different. And of course, it's notoriously the reason why the Allies in the war took to mass civilian bombings in order to generate this feeling. We're winning and you're losing. That makes me think that you are right, that the military is playing a bigger role in this film than we would have thought, because it's this type of storytelling, which is somehow solving Woodrow's difficulty, right? So the Marines, they're a plot device. They're sort of deus ex machina, even though they come in the beginning. (laughs) They continually make the plot happen. Otherwise, you have to think there's no way Woodrow's going to be able to go home. He's never going to do it. He'll lose his mother. He'll lose his girl. He'll lose his town. He'll lose his home out of shame. He can't admit to them that he had bad allergies. So his alienation in some way can't be fixed apart from this military maneuver, which tells a story about who he is, which isn't true. But someone sometimes gets the sense in the film that those stories are never quite true. That is, maybe he would have gone to Guadalcanal and maybe he would have been stuck back at the base for many hours, or maybe he would have been hit on the head early on and come to when the whole thing was over. There's a variety of ways of being, quote, quote, in the battle without really being in the battle. And everyone who comes home somehow has this glow around them and they tell stories to cover whatever the event was. Or maybe they did something shameful or disgraceful. Maybe they ran. Maybe they killed someone innocent. That's all covered over in the pageantry of war. And that's the tool that they're using to save Woodrow. They're first telling a war story about him, and then they tell a different kind of story, a story about a noble, heroic, duty-bound, truth-loving son of the town who wants nothing more than to serve it, just like he always served it by delivering papers and being the milkman and all the ways that a small-town boy serves his town. So I think that's quite interesting. And that it makes it, again, we were saying this, I suppose, before we started recording, Sturges, he's a subtle thinker. This, this could pass for a patriotic wartime film. It's pro-Marines in very obvious ways. An American civilian at home, I think, would have been stirred by patriotic fervor. But if you look closely at it, it's calling into question some of the terms under which patriotism takes place. It's calling attention to its reliance on storytelling, on myth, on legend, on competition between Americans, right, which it shouldn't be about. And it's lionizing the person who is not the war hero, but the ordinary Joe who just does his job and loves his mom. Um, it's a very fine piece of work in that way that he can make a wartime film meant to stir up your citizens while giving them things to reflect about, giving them some truth that might have been left out of a more jingoistic film and giving them ways of reflecting on the varieties of human excellence and what the needs of a community really are and how strange war is and how really alien to ordinary life it is. That's not something that no one else made films about, but I don't know that anyone made comedy quite like this about it. 
I can think about the best years of our lives, which of course is one of the truly great World War II movies and how beautifully realistic and gritty it is about the difference between wartime and peacetime. But it's not a comedy. It's dark and frightening in certain ways. And this this film isn't. It keeps all the darkness at bay, allows you to think about what's what might be even be funny about it. What's William Demarest with his hair flapping on his forehead talking about how Woodrow saved his life a hundred times on the beaches of Guadalcanal. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. Yeah, Preston Sturgis has a unique ability to hint at all the dark and dangerous things and keep them in mind in the construction of his plot, the characterization. They're there for anybody who notices. Say, you know, it's the umpteenth time you see the movie and suddenly the fist fight gets to you or some of the stories the soldiers tell. You don't know what will hit you, but he put it there just in case. But he also knows that there are rules to comedy and spooking your audience is unacceptable. You have to lead the story in a certain way because he does have this purpose. He wants to get the right guy elected. And that means that you have to present things so that peacetime politics can go on without everybody feeling all the time that they are the ungrateful losers who have inherited a peace they don't deserve and all that. You have to, to some extent, celebrate America and encourage Americans to laugh at themselves rather than to take a darker or too serious attitude to themselves. It's a form of prudence to encourage better passions in your audience and to keep them away from the darker ones, whether they are self-righteous or self-loathing. But there's at the same time this other thing, you know, what's a cripple who was super democratic and was supposed to save us from the oligarchy and who was a great leader? That's FDR. Right. Or if you're thinking about who's a really honest guy, nobody saw him coming for the presidency, he was a good American patriot, that would be Truman later. Right. These are possibilities of America. You know, they're quite interesting. And certainly FDR would have been on Preston Sturgis's mind since without World War II, FDR would not have the reputation he now has. The 30s were a miserable time. Right. But then, you know, he saved America and he became the triumphant and unique and shocking four-time president at that. Right. Well, Zina, I think we have reached the end of this conversation. I think we have shown our audience how far Preston Sturgis thought through this story of war and small-town politics of America in the 40s, of the transformations of democratic politics of the need for these humbler guys who admire war and are patriotic, but aren't themselves warlike. They are not great men like Doug MacArthur or George Patton. They're fit to be politicians devout to their communities, and they have to learn to rearrange their priorities. To have the whole horizon of America is good, but to have your eye on your community is also very necessary. That means, to some extent, be less idealistic and be more practical. And we could say that the torments, the trials and tribulations of our poor Woodrow are all deserved in that sense. They're a good education for him. They help him become the man that he needs to be and that his town needs. Nevertheless, we'll say a bit more about this in our next conversation on The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is also a wartime story, also a small town story. But that is as much about women and birth as this is about men and death. In both, of course, Eddie Brown is the protagonist and his main support is William Deborest. So there are very many connections and we'll draw them out in our next podcast. Thank you very much for joining me and uh, let's do this again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.